let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the book of Galatians chapter 1. And I am just very excited about our new study here in Galatians. I uh, thought for a long time about what we should study, and then when I finally decided on this, I got started into it, and I just really thought what a great study that this is going to be. So uh, I really enjoy what we're doing here. Now, if you look at the first verse, we're going to get right into our study this evening. We'll read these first five verses in Galatians, where Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I've tried to give you a sense of the importance of this letter and really how integral that it was to the Protestant Reformation uh, in the past sermons. It really has been the design of Satan always, uh, ever since the beginning, to undermine the gospel of Christ because it's Satan's purpose to keep people blinded to the truth. The Bible teaches us, and what we'll learn here in the book of Galatians, that there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way that we can be justified, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the confusion that existed about salvation prior to the Reformation has a really long history. In fact, it goes all the way back to the earliest times of gospel preaching. We find it here as the Apostle Paul was trying to establish churches in the southern portion of Galatia. And as he moved on from place to place, there was always someone following right behind him just trying to undo everything that he did, all the labor that he did in starting these churches. Someone was trying to tear all of that down and cause people to believe in a in a uh, false system of salvation and Paul knew that would happen and this is why we find also in in the book of Acts where we read all about these missionary journeys that Paul went on in Acts chapter 20 he was talking to the Ephesian elders when he left that church and he said for I know this that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you not sparing the flock also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And this is exactly what Paul experienced with the Galatians, because as soon as he left, the Judaizers rose up, they disputed Paul's doctrine of, of faith alone, and they insisted that circumcision must be added to faith as the means of justification. And that's really the very same doctrine that Martin Luther faced when uh, he was in the, in the Reformation, only by Martin Luther's time, the perversion of the gospel had mushroomed to such an extent that there was just this full-blown system of works justification that really only had just a pretense of faith that was attached to it. And I mentioned the Protestant Reformation because it, it is since that time that we've had so many defensive defenses written about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We ought not to get the idea, and I don't intend to give you the impression that Martin Luther was the savior of the gospel because he wasn't. Uh, These things were being taught by our 
Baptist forefathers long before Martin Luther ever came on the scene, going all the way back to the time of Jesus and the apostles. But uh, there's no mistaking this, I don't think, in looking at the history of of Christianity, that God used Martin Luther in a a great way to break the stranglehold of Catholicism on Western civilization. And Catholicism was the chief proponent, and it is still the chief proponent, the very same doctrine that Paul was so adamant in opposing. And Luther's method of attack on the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church had its foundation right here, and this is where he started, with the book of Galatians in this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And as we read this in this epistle, this is not a veiled argument. I mean, it's not something that you really just have to beat your head over to figure out what Paul's trying to say and trying to draw this out. It's very clear here what what Paul means when he talks about our justification and how it comes to us. So it's not a veiled argument. But rather what we see happening here is that Paul just explodes upon this subject immediately as he begins the letter. Now we talked about that as Paul's attitude in the defense. He doesn't waste any time getting to the point. Uh, There is no attitude of commendation which is the way he usually begins his letters. Usually there is some sort of statement about thankfulness for the faith of the readers that he's writing to. But Paul does not begin the book of Galatians in that way. Instead, there's an urgency about what he has to say. He's very, very serious. There's seriousness here because of the error. Because what Paul does not want to do is to make any kind of accommodation any kind of compromise whatsoever on this issue of how a person is justified before God. Because anything that adds works to the gospel of grace, even the slightest degree, even to the slightest degree, destroys grace altogether. And you recall that the Apostle Paul wrote about that in the book of Romans when he said, when you put works with grace, then grace is no more grace. You destroy it if you try to mix any kind of works with it. So human work, even in the very least degree, has no part of our justification. And any time that you try to add something to it, then it makes man responsible for his own salvation. Even if you come down to the place that you say, well, faith is the thing that the person adds to this, that that's his work, well, then you've just taken away the glory of God. And it's why we don't teach that, that our faith is actually a product of man's free will, but that is also a gift that's been freely given to us by God. Then we second, secondly noticed uh, or talked about Paul's authority in the defense. And this is one of the recurring themes that we find in the epistle, uh, Paul's defense of his authority as an apostle. Now, he doesn't use the word apostle in an ordinary sense. I mean, the word apostle simply means an ambassador. And in that sense, there were many apostles of Christ. But he uses this word in accordance with a special calling that was given to him by God, just like the other apostles had received when they were in the presence of Christ. And so when Paul speaks this way, when he writes a a letter like we have here in Galatians, he has the authority to speak in the place of Christ. In other words, in this capacity, it's just as if Christ was 
here or speaking himself or Paul or Christ had written the letter to himself uh, himself and and that's very important because there were people then and there are people now that don't like Paul's doctrine they don't agree with what he has to say as I mentioned last week some of them say well the Jewish background and all of that that colored what Paul had to say about uh, these different doctrines and so they say Paul is wrong and what we need to do is to correct Paul in what he said But we pointed out also that the apostles recognized Paul's authority. They recognized what he wrote was scripture, that he spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's no different than if God was here speaking himself. It's no different than what God did with Moses, where God came down with his own finger and wrote those tablets of stone and gave them to Moses. This is the very same thing. You have the inspiration of God with the apostle Paul. So it's just as if, God himself is speaking. So he defends this, that he's a specially called apostle. He's one that was chosen out of due time, not at the same time as the rest of the apostles, but in no sense was he any less of an authority in these things than those apostles were. So he was chosen directly by Christ. And we find that out in Acts chapter 9. And Paul uh, relates that incident of Acts 9 in two other places in the book of Acts where he tells people how he was specially called by Christ. So we see that attitude in the defense. We see the authority in the defense. And then here's where we left off in the last message. And that is Paul's affirmation in the defense. Now Paul is known as the apostle of grace. He's always speaking about the grace of God. And it's not as if the other apostles had a different opinion about uh, this matter of grace. But you see grace spoken of by Paul. Uh, I mean, there's just a particular emphasis in this, on this in his letters. We would call him a theologian of grace. And we, we really learn more from him about the doctrines of grace than we do any other writer of Scripture. We also learn from Paul the ordo salutis of, of salvation, and we find that in, in Romans chapter 8, and that simply means the order of salvation. How does it come to us? And Paul gives that to us as our predestination and our effectual calling, then our justification and our glorification. And we've learned here in this letter, in the opening verses of this letter, uh, this, this particular thing that we talked about last week, and again, this is as far as I got, and that is the cause and effect of salvation, the cause and effect. And so in verse number three, he says, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what you always see Paul doing. He's always putting grace first. And that's because the grace of God is the cause of our salvation. Grace is a movement in God. It's a disposition in God in which for reasons that are found only within the divine mind that he decides to show favor upon a guilty sinner. And the result of that movement of God's grace is that he supplies all the means that are necessary to change the state of a person from one of hostility towards him to one of reconciliation with him. And that's what the Bible means when it says we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him by God's grace and that hostility has been taken away. And the way that God does that is by uh, an act of double imputation. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us and then in turn he imputes the guilt of our sins to Christ. 
And this is what we call, that. what I've just said here, this double imputation is really the core. This is the central. This, this is it when you talk about justification. That's what it means. And the point of contention here about justification is justification, an act of God freely by grace and by faith alone is the instrument, or does justification come by faith plus meritorious works? That's the crux of the argument that we have here. And so that's the, that's the battleground for Paul against the Judaizers, the very same battleground that Martin Luther had against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I want to go on then this evening to verse number 4. And here we're going to talk about, first, the cross is the means of atonement. The cross is the means of atonement. Verse 4 says, "...who gave himself for our sins..." that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. So Paul here affirms that the cross is the means of atonement. It's the way that we're reconciled to God. Now, even though Paul doesn't mention the cross in this verse, it's clearly evident that this is what he intends. He says Christ gave himself, and that, of course, would be an allusion to his death on the cross. You know, I mentioned in an earlier lesson that we don't have any proof in Scripture that Paul was ever present at the cross, uh, that he was there during the crucifixion. I think if he had have been, that would have been a point that Paul would have surely made. But he wasn't there at the crucifixion, and so he didn't actually see the cross of Christ. He never saw Christ hanging on the cross. So he wasn't there, but I can promise you this, that when he was converted to Christ, he started spending a lot of time at the cross. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I'll give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. In Philippians 2, he said, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. In Colossians 1, he said, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Colossians 2, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Paul missed that physical sight of Christ hanging on a cross, but he never missed the effect of what happened at the cross. He never missed what took place at that cross. And so he goes on repeatedly to show us that we are reconciled to God because of what Christ did on the cross. And that's really just just a very important acknowledgement because if you could ever get to the point that you see what Christ did on the cross and you understand that and you're satisfied with the work that he did on the cross, then you would never have it enter into your mind 
that you could possibly add something yourself to the accomplishment of what Christ did there. There's just no way. When you see the cross as Paul saw it, saw it, that you could ever think that there's something that you could do to aid Christ in your salvation. And so these additions that you find that are placed in there by false religions such as Roman Catholicism, those things are made simply because they are not satisfied with what Christ did at the cross. That's the basis for keeping of sacraments. It's the basis for the repeated mutilation of Christ in the Mass. It's the purpose of the intercession of Mary, the doctrines they believe there. It's the purpose of purgatory. And we go on and on and on with that. When you start adding these things, these are people who are saying, Christ, what Christ did on the cross is not fully sufficient to take care of our salvation, but we have to add something to it. Or simply, Christ did not do enough at the cross. And so if you want to know why Paul hangs out at the cross, it's only there that he finds justification. It's only there that he finds salvation. It's only there that he finds sanctification. It's the only place where he'll find glorification. All of that is done at the cross. And so when you look at the cross, you are looking at the completed work of Jesus Christ. This is what he said on the cross. It is finished. And when Paul makes these arguments, he's putting his own stamp on that. He's saying it is finished. That the cross is the only fully sufficient means of salvation for the believer. Calvin, who was one of the reformers, said, If those Galatians had appreciated the gospel of Christ, they would not have been tempted to go off into these alien aberrations from the faith. Now, I want to give you just very briefly this evening a few observations about the cross. First of all, when we talk about the cross and Christ's death, Christ's death was voluntary. Verse number four begins, who gave himself for our sins. And what we learn there is that the cross was Christ's intention from the beginning. He wasn't a martyr for a cause. His death was not a tragedy of fate. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a misunderstanding. As Peter says in Acts 2, he was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And as you read the gospel accounts, you'll begin to understand and see how that Christ orchestrated the time of his death. When he needed to be concealed, he was concealed. There were times when they would have taken him prematurely. And uh, we have incidents where Jesus would just vanish, so to speak, or just pass through the crowds and they wouldn't know where he was and they wouldn't be able to catch up with him. He would just disappear. And that's because he was controlling the time of his death. And he could have kept doing that if he wanted to. I mean, he had the power to do that. But when it came time for him to go to the cross, just as Isaiah said, he set his face like a flint. And when that time came, he told his disciples, get up and let's get going. We're going to Jerusalem because I need to be delivered into their hands to be crucified. That was his purpose. And he did it voluntarily because that was the only way that he could affect our salvation. Secondly, we think about the cross. Christ's death there was substitutionary. Who gave himself for our sins. So his death was, uh, was in our place as a penal substitute. Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So the scripture is telling us that Christ was punished in our place. 
He took the hell that we deserved. And so what he did was to satisfy the righteous demands of God's law for us. God's law says that sin must be punished. And whatever God is, he is supremely just. And so there is no accommodation for setting aside the law. He doesn't say, well, that's okay. I'll forgive you for breaking the law and we won't just worry. We won't worry about it. We'll just let that go. No, God is a God of justice. And so he demands when the law is broken, it has to be satisfied. And so what Christ did was to appease the wrath of God. He perfectly kept God's law. He did both of these things. By his life, he perfectly kept God's law, he earned righteousness that he could give to us, and that's the righteousness that's used in our justification. And then he quieted this wrath of God because God accepted the suffering that he did on the cross in our place as our payment for sin. And so as the Bible says, he took on him the iniquities of us all. And so that sin debt that we owed was placed upon Christ. He paid the debt, he took our place. It was the substitution of the innocent for the guilty. Thirdly, with Christ's death on the cross, his death was satisfactory. And I mean that in a different way than it was satisfactory to God, but I mean it was satisfactory in the sense that Christ's death did everything that it was intended to do. So it didn't fall short of its intended purpose. Well, what is it that Christ intended to do? Well, we find that also in verse number four. It says, who gave himself for us that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And so here's the intention to deliver us from this evil world. Now, I want you to look very closely at that. And you might even want to underline or circle the word deliver there and write out beside it that this is a word that means to rescue. That it was Christ's intention to rescue us. And in every place in Scripture where the death of Christ is spoken of, it's considered to be a fait accompli. That simply means it's an accomplished fact. That Christ intended to rescue, and he does in fact rescue. And we find this same word used multiple times in Scripture, especially in the book of Acts. Uh, One of those times is when Peter was delivered from prison. And I think you're probably familiar with that incident. Uh, That happens in Acts chapter 12. And this is where all the disciples were gathered together and they were praying for Peter that he would be delivered from prison. And they were in the middle of that prayer and they were having this meeting and they're praying about this thing as fervently as they could, I suppose. And an angel came to the prison where Peter was and set him free. And so Peter came out of the prison and he went to the place where they're having the prayer meeting and he knocked on the door And there was a girl by the name of Rhoda that came to the door and she heard Peter's voice outside and she was surprised and failed to even open the door to let him in. And so she ran into the room where everybody was praying and she said, Peter's out there. And they all said, you're crazy. Peter's not out there. Peter's in prison. That's what you call praying in faith. But they said, he's not out there. He's in prison. And so Peter came in and he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod. It's this very same word that we find in Galatians. It means that he was rescued, that the rescue was done. It's a fait accompli. Stephen also used the word in Acts chapter 7 when he was speaking to the Sanhedrin and he was relating the story of how that Israel was delivered from bondage and he repeats the words of God where God says, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. And now come, he says to Moses, and I will send thee to Egypt. God 
delivered them. He rescued them. And we're not talking about something here that he did potentially. It's not a possibility. But the word is used as an action that is accomplished. Now, most of you probably don't understand this or don't realize that most churches do not teach that the death of Christ actually accomplished its purpose. Instead, what they say is that Christ's death made salvation possible. Salvation made it so you could be rescued. So salvation is a potentiality, it's a possibility, but only if there are certain conditions that are met. And so they will say, well, Christ's death was intended to save every person in the world without exception. And yet, we all know that the entire world is not rescued. Not everybody goes to heaven. And so Christ's intention to save everybody must be frustrated that he didn't really accomplish what he intended to do. Because if he did, then we would have eternal or universal salvation. And further, the idea that Christ's purpose could be frustrated would be to deny that his death was truly substitutionary. Because substitution teaches that Christ accepted. He took the punishment of sin for everyone upon himself. And so if he did that, then there's no reason why everybody shouldn't be saved. Their punishment has been taken, and so why should they be punished? John, John Owen had an excellent argument on this. He said, why do people go to hell? And I think most people would say, well, the reason they go to hell is because of unbelief. And so Owen asked, well, did Christ die for the sin of unbelief? And so he has his opponent on the horns of a dilemma because he said, if he says, well, Christ did die for the sin of unbelief, then why does a person go to hell? If he says Christ didn't die for the sin of unbelief, then how can any of us be forgiven because all of us were once in unbelief? So you see a problem with that? If Christ died for everybody without exception, then everybody without exception must go to heaven because everything that you need to go to heaven was done at the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. And so if his death is truly substitutionary, then the result of what happened at the cross has to be coterminous with that original intention, which is what? The salvation of a sinner. Deliver him from this present evil world. So if Christ is successful, either nobody goes to hell or his death is not intended to be actually the rescue of every person. So what Paul says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And Paul doesn't say, well, he tried to do that. He tried to effect a rescue. He really wants to effect a rescue. But the point here is he didn't rescue. He didn't rescue all that believe which would be, or he did, I should say, he did rescue all that did believe, which is one and the same as those that he gave his life for. But that whole thing, what I'm telling you now, some of you might be puzzled, well, what are you actually talking about there? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question for most people, and I think our objections over this would be eased somewhat if we ask another question, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But here's what you'd have to consider. When Christ came into the world, there were already 4,000 years of human history, at least 4,000 years that had gone by. And during that time, hell was being rapidly populated. And that's because during that time, there were no people that had a relationship with God except Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. The rest of the world was in wickedness. This is what Paul says to the 
uh, Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so that means, very simply, all of those people were lost. They had no hope. And so there are millions of people died without knowledge of the one true God. And so at the time that Christ came, hell is teeming with all of these people that have never heard the gospel of Christ and have never believed. They know nothing at all about him. And so the question then that you have to ask is, did Christ suffer hell for people that were already in hell when he came? Was he a substitute for their sins? And so simply put, you have to ask the question, did Christ die for people that were already in hell? And if you get the answer to that question, then you have to ask them, what was the purpose if he did? Was he able to effect some kind of a rescue for them? And you have to be very careful while you go there because you might come up with the doctrine of second chance. And we know that has nothing to do with the scripture. So at at, at what you have here then, at the very least, you would have a mindless savior or you have a worthless atonement. You have to pick your, pick your poison here. Now here, though, is the very important point that we need to consider when we talk about this very difficult question. And all of us know this. This is a doctrine that goes down hard. And this is because most people probably do not understand that they think this way. And, and this is how they really think. They would rather that Christ would be unsuccessful in his attempts to save rather than to think that God somehow might be less than vindicated or that God would be unfair in what he did with the atonement. And that whole thing's a, another point for another time. But the important, important point to consider now is that if Christ is frustrated in the attempt to save, then what else can he be frustrated with? What happens to those that have put their faith in him, if he's not able to accomplish what he wanted to do at the cross, then what makes us believe that he's able to accomplish the, the uh, full keeping, the full protection of our salvation? How do we know that he's not going to be frustrated in that? Another question you might ask, how's he going to keep, how do we know for sure he's able to keep heaven secure? How do we know for sure he's able to keep the devil in hell? I mean, if his will can be frustrated in one area then what are the other areas in which his will can be frustrated? So you see, you run into huge problems if you say that what Christ did at the cross was only to make salvation possible and that salvation doesn't actually secure the salvation of anyone. In other words, his death alone doesn't save. What saves is when we mix something with it, that we put something that we do with it, and then the cross becomes effective. But I hope you understand by what I'm saying here that this is the exact point. The cross is fully sufficient. It's satisfactory in every way to accomplish exactly what was intended. And so what we have here is part and parcel of the doctrine of salvation according to Paul. You can't miss this because this is the doctrine found in every one of his epistles. And you can't miss it because it's the doctrine of Christ. If you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to find Jesus enumerating every single one of the doctrines of grace. And what Paul does here is to affirm them as the apostle of Jesus Christ. So we have that cause and effect of salvation. We have the cross that is the means of atonement. And then thirdly, we have the credit for it. The credit for all of it goes to the Almighty. 
He says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we have to ask the question, when and where and by whom and why did this idea arise that Christ should go to the cross to pay for our sins? And the Bible teaches that the world was created with that in view the when of it is before the foundation of the world and that's very clear from numerous scriptures like Ephesians 1 4 2 Thessalonians 2 13 uh, Revelation 13 8 17 8 among many others that we could name the where of it is the council halls of eternity this is what Paul or rather Jesus says in John 17 then the who of it is God the father It was Jesus who said, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless thy will be done. And he said, I came to do the will of the Father. And so what Paul says here is nothing less than to agree with what Jesus said when he called him to be an apostle. He said, this happens because it is the will. It is according to the will of the Father. So Christ came and he gave himself because of the will of the Father. Now that doesn't match what a lot of people seem to think about God the Father. Instead, they have a picture of of the Father as being the tyrant. The Father is the one who wants to send people to hell, and Jesus is the one who gets between us and him and just holds him back for just a little bit longer, just long enough for us to squeeze us into heaven. And so they act like the Father is straining to get at us, and Jesus is holding him back. But you know that's a totally wrong picture of God the Father? The way the scriptures present the Father is that he is a loving Father. That he's a Father who cares for us. He's the one that we pray to. Uh, Jesus said, you're a Father in heaven. He already knows what you have need of. He, he's the one that clothes the grass of the field. He's the one that makes the beautiful lilies grow. He's the one that knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. Do you don't think that he's going to take care of you? So Jesus presents him as a loving father. And this loving father had it in his will to provide a means by which we could be saved. And that means is the death of his own son. And he says, this is all done. Jesus said, it's done because God so loved the world. And then you have the why of it. And this is so important. And I wish more people really thought about the why of salvation. What is the why of it? Most people would say, well, the why of it so I'd get to heaven. I mean, that's the main thing, isn't it? I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. I've got to get to heaven. So the why of all of what Jesus did is to get me to heaven. Well, that's a side point. The why of it is what Paul says here, and that is, to whom be glory forever and ever. The why of it is the glory of God. And so what God did in sending Christ was to show his magnanimous, loving character in a way that was gloriously displayed. The Bible says even the angels are stupefied by this. They, they don't understand why God would do such a thing. Why would he send his own son? And we might expect, well, God could figure out another way to do this. Then maybe he'll send an angel. I mean, he has plenty of angels to spare. So why not send an angel? Let an angel die for our sins. Well, the reason that he sent Christ was because this was the infinite expression of his love, his mercy, and his grace. See, what we have is a God of superlatives. And so what God did was to top the untoppable. He sent his own son. He sent God to die for us. 
You know, the kids sing that song, God Can Do Anything But Fail. And that's a real good song, especially when you consider what we're talking about tonight. When you think of the atonement, God cannot fail in his purpose. He saves who he, who he intends to save. But there's actually something else that God can't do, some other things he can't do. He can't give a greater sacrifice than his son. He can't show his love in a greater way. He can't display his grace in any higher form. God cannot fail, and he cannot top the redemption price that was paid by his only son, Jesus Christ. Now, you look at that. You look at verse number four, and you have to say, wow. I mean, no wonder that Luther loved this letter so much. We're just five verses into this, and we've already got a verse that you can't top. You can't find anything better than this in Scripture. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you think about that for a while, and you chew on that for a while, and see if you really think that God could ever be frustrated. God sent his Son to rescue us. And Christ is not going to go to the Father empty-handed. He's not going to return to the Father with the quiver half full of his children. He's going to bring them all. He said it best himself in John 17. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And that just sort of sums it all up. It's the who, what, why, and where of redemption. And this is just a wonderful affirmation made by Paul in these verses, who is the apostle of Jesus Christ and of God the Father. Oh, there's just so much to see in this letter. So much, so much doctrine, so much depth that's, that's in this scripture. It just, it's beyond us. I mean, it's going, to be, it's going to take us a while to get through it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for uh, this lesson that we have. And we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful book of Galatians that means so much to our faith. I do pray, Lord, that even though some things that we've talked about tonight are kind of difficult to understand and maybe I can't get the meaning across in exactly the way that I want to, but we don't want anybody to give up on this. Um, There are things that we don't understand in the beginning, and so we ought not to sit back and think, well, that's just too hard for me. I, I can't put it all together. Because we know if we keep learning bits and pieces and start working with the text and see what's said here, that by the time we're done, we should have a good understanding of what this book has to say. Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to stick with it. Help us to even do some independent study that will help us to understand this even better. Lord, thank you again for this study and for the people who have come to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.